Second Book, First Aspect, Sections 24 and 25, of The World as Will and Idea. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The World as Will and Idea, Volume 1, by Arthur Schopenhauer. Translated by R. B. Haldane and J. Kemp. Second Book, First Aspect, Sections 24 and 25. Section 24. We have learnt from the great Kant that time, space, and causality, with their entire constitution, and the possibility of all their forms, are present in our consciousness quite independently of the objects which appear in them, and which constitute their content or, in other words, they can be arrived at just as well if we start from the subject as if we start from the object. Therefore, with equal accuracy, we may call them either forms of intuition or perception of the subject, or qualities of the object as object, with Kant phenomenon. In other words, idea. We may also regard these forms as the irreducible boundary between object and subject. All objects must therefore exist in them, yet the subject, independently of the phenomenal object, possesses and surveys them completely. But if the objects appearing in these forms are not to be empty phantoms, but are to have a meaning, they must refer to something, must be the expression of something, which is not, like themselves, object, idea, a merely relative existence for a subject but which exists without such dependence upon something which stands over against it as a condition of its being, and independent of the forms of such a thing, in other words, is not idea, but a thing in itself. Consequently, it may at least be asked, are these ideas, these objects, something more than, or apart from, the fact that they are ideas, objects of the subject? And what would they be in this sense? What is that other side of them which is, toto genera, different from idea? What is the thing in itself? The will, we have answered, but for the present I set that answer aside. Whatever the thing in itself may be, Kant is right in his conclusion that time, space, and causality, which we afterwards found to be forms of the principle of sufficient reason, the general expression of the forms of the phenomenon, are not its properties but come to it only after and so far as it has become idea. That is, they belong only to its phenomenal existence, not to itself. For since the subject fully understands and constructs them out of itself, independently of all object, they must be dependent upon existence as idea, as such, not upon that which becomes idea. They must be the form of the idea as such, but not qualities of that which has assumed this form. They must be already given with the mere antithesis of subject and object, not as concepts but as facts, and consequently they must be only the more exact determination of the form of knowledge in general, whose most universal determination is that antithesis itself. Now, that in the phenomenon, in the object, which is in its turn conditioned by time, space, and causality, inasmuch as it can only become idea by means of them, namely, multiplicity, through coexistence and succession, change, and permanence, through the law of causality, matter, which can only become idea under the presupposition of causality, 
and lastly all that becomes idea only by means of these all this i say as a whole does not in reality belong to that which appears to that which has passed into the form of an idea but belongs merely to this form itself and conversely that in the phenomenon which is not conditioned through time space and causality and which cannot be referred to them nor explained in accordance with them is precisely that in which the thing manifested the thing in itself directly reveals itself it follows from this that the most complete capacity for being known that is to say the greatest clearness distinctness and susceptibility of exhaustive explanation will necessarily belong to that which pertains to knowledge as such and thus to the form of knowledge but not to that which in itself is not idea not object but which has become knowledge only through entering these forms in other words has become idea object thus only that which depends entirely upon being an object of knowledge upon existing as idea in general and as such not upon that which becomes known and has only become idea which therefore belongs without distinction to everything that is known and which on that account is found just as well if we start from the subject as if we start from the object this alone can afford us without reserve a sufficient exhaustive knowledge a knowledge which is clear to the very foundation but this consists of nothing but those forms of all phenomena of which we are conscious a priori and which may be generally expressed as the principle of sufficient reason now the forms of this principle which occur in knowledge of perception with which alone we are here concerned are time space and causality the whole of pure mathematics and pure natural science a priori is based entirely upon these therefore it is only in these sciences that knowledge finds no obscurity does not rest upon what is incomprehensible groundless in other words will upon what cannot be further deduced it is on this account that kant wanted as we have said to apply the same science specially and even exclusively to these branches of knowledge together with logic but on the other hand these branches of knowledge show us nothing more than mere connections relations of one idea to another form devoid of all content all content which they receive every phenomenon which fills these forms contains something which is no longer completely knowable in its whole nature something which can no longer be entirely explained through something else something then which is groundless through which consequently the knowledge loses its evidence and ceases to be completely lucid this that withholds itself from investigation however is the thing in itself is that which is essentially not idea not object of knowledge but has only become knowable by entering that form the form is originally foreign to it and the thing in itself can never become entirely one with it can never be referred to mere form and since this form is the principle of sufficient reason can never be completely explained if therefore all mathematics affords us an exhaustive knowledge of that which in the phenomena is quantity position number in a word spatial and temporal relations if all etiology gives us a complete account of the regular conditions under which phenomena with all their determinations appear in time and space but with it all teaches us nothing more than why in each case this particular phenomenon must appear just at this time here and at this place now 
It is clear that with their assistance we can never penetrate to the inner nature of things. There always remains something which no explanation can venture to attack, but which it always presupposes. The forces of nature, the definite mode of operation of things, the quality and character of every phenomenon, that which is without ground, that which does not depend upon the form of this form in itself, is foreign, something which has not yet entered this form, and now appears according to its law, a law, however, which only determines the appearance, not that which appears, only the how, not the what, only the form, not the content. Mechanics, physics, and chemistry teach the rules and laws according to which the forces of impenetrability, gravitation, rigidity, fluidity, cohesion, elasticity, heat, light, affinity, magnetism, electricity, etc., operate. That is to say, the law, the rule which these forces observe whenever they enter time and space. But do what we will, the forces themselves remain qualitates occulte. For it is just the thing in itself which, because it is manifested, exhibits these phenomena, which are entirely different from itself. In its manifestation, indeed, it is completely subordinated to the principle of sufficient reason as the form of the idea, but it can never itself be referred to this form, and therefore cannot be fully explained etiologically, can never be completely fathomed. It is certainly perfectly comprehensible so far as it has assumed that form, that is, so far as it is phenomenon. But its inner nature is not in the least explained by the fact that it can thus be comprehended. Therefore, the more necessity any knowledge carries with it, the more there is in it of that which cannot be otherwise thought or presented in perception, as, for example, space relations. The clearer and more sufficing then it is, the less pure objective content it has, or the less reality, properly so called, is given in it. And conversely, the more there is in it which must be conceived as mere chance, and the more it impresses us as given merely empirically, the more proper objectivity and true reality is there in such knowledge, and at the same time the more that is inexplicable, that is, that cannot be deduced from anything else. It is true that at all times an etiology, unmindful of its real aim, has striven to reduce all organized life to chemism, or electricity, all chemism, that is to say quality, again to mechanism, action determined by the shape of the atom, this again sometimes to the object of phoronomy, in other words the combination of time and space, which makes motion possible, sometimes to the object of mere geometry in other words position in space much in the same way as we rightly deduce the diminution of an effect from the square of the distance and the theory of the lever in a purely geometrical manner geometry may finally be reduced to arithmetic which on account of its one dimension is of all the forms of the principle of sufficient reason the most intelligible comprehensible and completely susceptible of investigation as instances of the method generally indicated here we may refer to the atoms of Democritus, the vortex of Descartes, the mechanical physics of Lesage, which towards the end of last century tried to explain both chemical affinities and gravitation mechanically by impact and pressure, as may be seen in detail in Lucrece Newtonian. Rayle's form and combination as the cause of animal life also tends in this direction. Finally, 
the crude materialism which even now in the middle of the nineteenth century has been served up again under the ignorant delusion that it is original belongs distinctly to this class it stupidly denies vital force and first of all tries to explain the phenomena of life from physical and chemical forces and those again from the mechanical effects of the matter position form and motion of imagined atoms and thus seeks to reduce all the forces of nature to action and reaction as its thing in itself according to this teaching light is the mechanical vibration or undulation of an imaginary ether postulated for this end this ether if it reaches the eye beats rapidly upon the retina and gives us the knowledge of color thus for example four hundred and eighty three billion beats in a second give red and seven hundred and twenty seven billion beats in a second give violet upon this theory persons who are color-blind must be those who are unable to count the beats must they not such crass mechanical clumsy and certainly knotty theories which remind one of democritus are quite worthy of those who fifty years after the appearance of goethe's doctrine of color still believe in newton's homogeneous light and are not ashamed to say so they will find that what is overlooked in the child democritus will not be forgiven to the man they might indeed some day come to an ignominious end but then every one would slink away and pretend that he never had anything to do with them we shall soon have to speak again of this false reduction of the forces of nature to each other so much for the present supposing this theory were possible all would certainly be explained and established and finally reduced to an arithmetical problem which would then be the holiest thing in the temple of wisdom to which the principle of sufficient reason would at last have happily conducted us but all content of the phenomenon would have disappeared and the mere form would remain the what appears would be referred to the how it appears and this how would be what is a priori knowable therefore entirely dependent on the subject therefore only for the subject therefore lastly mere phantom idea and form of idea through and through no thing in itself could be demanded supposing then that this were possible the whole world would be derived from the subject and in fact that would be accomplished which fichte wanted to seem to accomplish by his empty bombast but it is not possible fantasies sophisms castles in the air have been constructed in this way but science never the many and multifarious phenomena in nature have been successfully referred to particular original forces and as often as this has been done a real advance has been made several forces and qualities which were at first regarded as different have been derived from each other and thus their number has been curtailed for example magnetism from electricity etiology will have reached its goal when it has recognized and exhibited as such all the original forces of nature and established their mode of operation in other words the law according to which under the guidance of causality their phenomena appear in time and space and determine their position with regard to each other but certain original forces will always remain over there will always remain as an insoluble residuum a content of phenomena which cannot be referred to their form and thus cannot be explained from something else in accordance with the principle of sufficient reason for in everything in nature there is something of which no ground can ever be assigned of which no explanation is possible 
and no ulterior cause is to be sought. This is the specific nature of its action, in other words, the nature of its existence, its being. Of each particular effect of the thing a cause may be certainly indicated, from which it follows that it must act just at this time and in this place. But no cause can ever be found from which it follows that a thing acts in general, and precisely in the way it does. If it has no other qualities, if it is merely a note in a sunbeam, it yet exhibits this unfathomable something, at least as weight and impenetrability. But this, I say, is to the mote what his will is to a man, and, like the human will, it is, according to its inner nature, not subject to explanation, nay, more, it is in itself identical with this will. It is true that a motive may be given for every manifestation of will, for every act of will at a particular time and in a particular place upon which it must necessarily follow, under the presupposition of the character of the man. But no reason can ever be given that the man has this character, that he wills at all, that of several motives just this one and no other, or indeed that any motive at all, moves his will. That which in the case of man is the unfathomable character which is presupposed in every explanation of his actions from motives is, in the case of every unorganized body, its definitive quality, the mode of its action, the manifestations of which are occasioned by impressions from without, while it itself, on the contrary, is determined by nothing outside itself, and thus is also inexplicable. Its particular manifestations, through which alone it becomes visible, are subordinated to the principle of sufficient reason. It itself is groundless. This was, in substance, rightly understood by the schoolmen, who called it forma substantialis. Refer to Suarez, Disputations, Disposition, 15, Section 1. It is a greater and commoner error that the phenomena which we best understand are those which are of most frequent occurrence, and which are most universal and simple. For, on the contrary, these are just the phenomena that we are most accustomed to see about us, and to be ignorant of. It is just as inexplicable to us that a stone should fall to the earth as that an animal should move itself. It has been supposed, as we have remarked above, that starting from the most universal forces of nature—gravitation, cohesion, impenetrability—it was possible to explain from them the rarer forces which only operate under a combination of circumstances, for example, chemical quality, electricity, magnetism. And lastly, from these to understand the organism and the life of animals, and even the nature of human knowing and willing. Men resigned themselves without a word to starting from mere qualitates occulte, the elucidation of which was entirely given up, for they intended to build upon them, not to investigate them. Such an intention cannot, as we have already said, be carried out. But apart from this, such structures would always stand in the air. What is the use of explanations which ultimately refer us to something which is quite as unknown as the problem with which we started? Do we in the end understand more of the inner nature of these universal natural forces than of the inner nature of an animal? Is not the one as much a sealed book to us as the other? Unfathomable, because it is without ground, because it is the content, that which the phenomenon is, and which can never be referred to the form, to the how, to the principle of sufficient reason. But we, 
who have in view not etiology, but philosophy, that is, not relative but unconditioned knowledge of the real nature of the world, take the opposite course, and start from that which is immediately and most completely known to us, and fully and entirely trusted by us, that which lies nearest to us, in order to understand that which is known to us only at a distance, one-sidedly and indirectly. From the most powerful, most significant, and most distinct phenomenon we seek to arrive at an understanding of those that are less complete and weaker. With the exception of my own body, all things are known to me only on one side, that of the idea. Their inner nature remains hidden from me and a profound secret, even if I know all the causes from which their changes follow. Only by comparison with that which goes on in me if my body performs an action when I am influenced by a motive only by comparison, I say, with what is the inner nature of my own changes determined by external reasons, can I obtain insight into the way in which these lifeless bodies change under the influence of causes, and so understand what is their inner nature. For the knowledge of the causes of the manifestation of this inner nature affords me merely the rule of its appearance in time and space, and nothing more. I can make this comparison because my body is the only object of which I know not merely the one side that of the idea, but also the other side which is called will. Thus, instead of believing that I would better understand my own organization, and then my own knowing and willing, and my movements following upon motives, if I could only refer them to movements due to electrical, chemical, and mechanical causes, I must, seeing that I seek philosophy and not etiology, learn to understand from my own movements following upon motives the inner nature of the simplest and commonest movements of an unorganized body which I see following upon causes. I must recognize the inscrutable forces which manifest themselves in all natural bodies as identical in kind with that which in me is the will, and as differing from it only in degree. That is to say, the fourth class of ideas given in the essay on the principle of sufficient reason must be the key to the knowledge of the inner nature of the first class. And by means of the law of motivation I must come to understand the inner meaning of the law of causation. Spinoza, Epistle 62, says that if a stone which has been projected through the air had consciousness, it would believe that it was moving of its own will. I add to this only that the stone would be right. The impulse given it is for the stone what the motive is for me, and what in the case of the stone appears as cohesion, gravitation, rigidity, is in its inner nature the same as that which I recognize in myself as will, and what the stone also, if knowledge were given to it, would recognize as will. In the passage referred to, Spinoza had in view the necessity with which the stone flies and he rightly desires to transfer this necessity to that of the particular act of will of a person. I, on the other hand, consider the inner being, which alone imparts meaning and validity to all real necessity, in other words, effect following upon a cause, as its presupposition. In the case of men this is called character. In the case of a stone it is called quality, but it is the same in both. When it is immediately known it is called will. In the stone it has the weakest, and in the man the strongest degree, of visibility, of objectivity. St. Augustine recognizes with a true instinct this identity of the tendencies of all things with our willing, and I cannot refrain from quoting his naive account of the matter. Si pecora esimus carnalem vitam et quad secundum 
sensum ejusdem est amarimas idque esset sufficiens bonum nostrum et segundum hac si esset nobis bene nihil aliud queremus item si abores esimus viderimur quo faracius esimus uberiusque fructose si esimus lapides aut fluctus aut ventus aut flamma vel quid ejusmode sine ullo quidem sensu atque vita non tamen nobis dicet quasi quidem nostrorum locorum atque ordinus appetitus nam velut amores corporum momenta sunt ponderum sive deorsum gravitate sive psursum levitate nitantur ita enim corpus pondere sicut animus amore ferter quocunque ferter de civ dei eleven twenty eight it ought further to be mentioned that euler saw that the inner nature of gravitation must ultimately be referred to an inclination and desire thus will peculiar to material bodies in the sixtieth letter to the princess indeed it is just this that makes him averse to the conception of gravitation as it existed for newton and he is inclined to try a modification of it in accordance with the earlier cartesian theory and so to derive gravitation from the impact of an ether upon the bodies as being more rational and more suitable for persons who like clear and intelligible principles he wishes to banish attraction from physics as a qualitas occulta this is only in keeping with the dead view of nature which prevailed at euler's time as the correlative of the immaterial soul it is only worth noticing because of its bearing upon the fundamental truth established by me which even at that time this fine intellect saw glimmering in the distance he hastened to turn in time and then in his anxiety at seeing all the prevalent fundamental views endangered he sought safety in the old and already exploded absurdities section twenty five we know that multiplicity in general is necessarily conditioned by space and time and is only thinkable in them in this respect they are called the principium individuationis but we have found that space and time are forms of the principle of sufficient reason in this principle all our knowledge a priori is expressed but as we showed above this a priori knowledge as such only applies to the knowableness of things not to the things themselves in other words it is only our form of knowledge it is not a property of the thing in itself the thing in itself is as such free from all forms of knowledge even the most universal that of being an object for the subject in other words the thing in itself is something altogether different from the idea if now this thing in itself is the will as i believe i have fully and convincingly proved it to be then regarded as such and apart from its manifestation it lies outside time and space and therefore knows no multiplicity and is consequently one yet as i have said it is not one in the sense in which an individual or a concept is one but as something to which the condition of the possibility of multiplicity the principium individuationis 
is foreign. The multiplicity of things in space and time, which collectively constitute the objectification of will, does not affect the will itself, which remains indivisible notwithstanding it. It is not the case that, in some way or other, a smaller part of the will is in the stone and a larger part in the man, for the relation of part and whole belongs exclusively to space, and has no longer any meaning when we go beyond this form of intuition or perception. The more and the less have application only to the phenomenon of will, that is, its visibility, its objectification. Of this there is a higher grade in the plant than in the stone, in the animal a higher grade than in the plant. Indeed, the passage of will into visibility, its objectification, has grades as innumerable as exist between the dimmest twilight and the brightest sunshine, the loudest sound and the faintest echo. We shall return later to the consideration of these grades of visibility which belong to the objectification of the will, to the reflection of its nature. But as the grades of its objectification do not directly concern the will itself, still less is it concerned by the multiplicity of the phenomena of these different grades, in other words, the multitude of individuals of each form, or the particular manifestations of each force. For this multiplicity is directly conditioned by time and space into which the will itself never enters. The will reveals itself as completely and as much in one oak as in millions. Their number and multiplication in space and time has no meaning with regard to it, but only with regard to the multiplicity of individuals who know in space and time, and who are themselves multiplied and dispersed in these. The multiplicity of these individuals itself belongs not to the will, but only to its manifestation. We may therefore state that if, per impossibile, a single real existence, even the most insignificant, were to be entirely annihilated, the whole world would necessarily perish with it. The great mystic Angelus Silesius feels this when he says, I know God cannot live an instant without me. He must give up the ghost if I should cease to be. Men have tried in various ways to bring the immeasurable greatness of the material universe nearer to the comprehension of us all, and then they have seized the opportunity to make edifying remarks. They have referred perhaps to the relative smallness of the earth, and indeed of man, or, on the contrary, they have pointed out the greatness of the mind of this man who is so insignificant, the mind that can solve, comprehend, and even measure the greatness of the universe, and so forth. Now, all this is very well. But to me, when I consider the vastness of the world, the most important point is this, that the thing in itself, whose manifestation is the world, whatever else it may be, cannot have its true self spread out and dispersed, after this fashion, in boundless space, but that this endless extension belongs only to its manifestation. The thing in itself, on the contrary, is present, entire, and undivided, in every object of nature and in every living being. Therefore. We lose nothing by standing still beside any single individual thing, and true wisdom is not to be gained by measuring out the boundless world, or, what would be more to the purpose, by actually traversing endless space. It is rather to be attained by the thorough investigation of any individual thing, for thus we seek to arrive at a full knowledge and understanding of its true and peculiar nature. The subject which will therefore be fully considered in the next book and which has doubtless already presented itself to the mind of every student of Plato, is that these different grades of the objectification of will which are manifested in innumerable individuals, 
and exist as their unattained types or as the external forms of things, not entering themselves into time and space, which are the medium of individual things, but remaining fixed, subject to no change, always being, never becoming, while the particular things arise and pass away, always become and never are, that these grades of the objectification of will are, I say, simply Plato's ideas. I make this passing reference to the matter here in order that I may be able in future to use the word idea in this sense. In my writings, therefore, the word is always to be understood in its true and original meaning given to it by Plato, and has absolutely no reference to those abstract productions of dogmatizing scholastic reason, which Kant has aptly and illegitimately used this word to denote, though Plato had already appropriated and used it most fitly. By idea, then, I understand every definite and fixed grade of the objectification of will, so far as it is the thing in itself, and therefore has no multiplicity. These grades are related to individual things as their eternal forms or prototypes. The shortest and most concise statement of this famous Platonic doctrine is given us by Diogenes Laertes. 3.12. Plato Ideas in Natura Velut exemplaria dixit subsisteri cetera his ease similia ad istarum similitudinem consistentia of kant's misuse of the word i take no further notice what it is needful to say about it will be found in the appendix end of second book first aspect sections twenty four and twenty five recording by bill borst